Well, uh, you guys are going to be blessed today. A friend of mine's in town, and he's teaching a, a men's uh, conference at Cornerstone. And uh, I'm like, dude, you're in town. I'm sure a bunch of people have hit you up to come preach on Sunday. And, uh, and he said, no, they haven't. And I said, well, consider this an invitation. Love to have you out. Nate Holdridge, he, he grew up at Calvary Monterey. He's a pastor's kid. He, uh, he started pastoring in 2002, um, and he became the senior pastor of the church that he grew up in, Calvary Monterey, in 2008. He's uh, married to Christina. They have three uh, daughters, and he has a passion and a gift for teaching God's Word. You're going to discover that today. And uh, as well, he has a passion to help men reach their God-given potential. Um, and uh, he's authored a couple of books, and I've asked him to tell you a little bit about his most recent book today. Uh, please welcome Pastor Nate Holdridge. All right. Thanks, Ted. Good morning, church. Great to be with you today. If you have a Bible, would you take it out and open up to Mark chapter 4? Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to be in the Word uh, together this morning. And uh, thank you, Ted, for sharing a little bit about some of the writing that I've been able to do over the years. The first book that I was able to write was called The No-Nonsense Biblical Man. And the reason that I wrote it is because I have three daughters. And uh, I was just looking at my girls when they were younger, and I just thought, you know, someday three knuckleheads are going to come knocking on my door asking me if they can take these precious children away from me. And what do I hope that these young men have dialed down in their lives by the time they feel that they're ready for that kind of commitment? And so I wrote a book just kind of describing, I think, the spiritual health of a Christian man and just called it the no-nonsense biblical uh, man. So thanks, Ted, for mentioning that. And you could grab that on Amazon if that sounds like something that's appealing uh, to you. But today, I'm excited to share with you from the Gospel of Mark. I understand that you've been going as a church through the book of John together. And there's an episode in the Gospel of John where Jesus walks on the water. It's a very famous episode. I know that you've already covered it together as a church. But there's another episode that happens out on the water that John does not include in his Gospel. And it's a very famous story that I'm sure you're very aware of. It's the moment where Jesus calms the storm. He's asleep in the boat, but he wakes up because of the disciples' urgency, and he calms the storm. And that's the passage we're going to look at in Mark's gospel today, Mark chapter 4, verse 35 uh, to 41. So let's pray to God. God, we do come to you this morning, and we quiet our hearts before you and your word. We believe that this story has been not only written, but preserved for almost 2,000 years now, so that we, as disciples, as followers of Jesus today, could learn of Jesus and could apply the truth that these disciples began to unearth in this boat many years ago to our lives today. And we pray, Lord, by your Spirit, that you would do that work as we interact with this short little episode from your holy book. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this story, before I read any of the verses to you, again, it's a very short story, and we will read each verse together as we go through it, but this story is what you could call an identity account in the Gospels, an identity account. And what that means is that the disciples are 
slowly discovering the identity of Jesus. Even when they first began following him, they weren't all that sure about who they were following. Is this a rabbi? Is this a prophet? Is this a great leader? Has God come like he came through Moses? Who is this man? And they've not yet come to the place of confessing, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This was developing in the heart of the disciples. And so this is an identity account that we're looking at here uh, in the Gospel of Mark. But additionally, uh, there are some dangers in this text. You know, one of the dangers in this passage or in this text is the concept or the understanding that sometimes we become very familiar with a passage of Scripture like this one. It's well known to us. All of us have heard the story of Jesus and the storm, Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. But there's also at times an abuse that we find in this text. And this is another danger that I'm concerned about this morning. You know, sometimes this story is used by pastors and preachers to make people think more about themselves than about Jesus, more about themselves and the storms that they endure in life than about Christ. But the reality of this story is that Jesus is going to reveal himself to his disciples. This story is not a story which is to help us say to ourselves, I have my storms, I have my difficulties, and I praise God that Jesus is there for me to calm my storms. Jesus, in this passage, is not presented to us as the slave to our difficulties, the slave to our trials. No, in this passage, the disciples are going to learn something vital about Jesus. And that vital information that they're going to learn is going to do more for them in the storms of life that they will experience in the future than any trite understanding or trite message that says, in the storms of life, Jesus is there for me. Sometimes we'll say this kind of thing without understanding how is Jesus there with me? Who is Jesus as he's there with me? And why does he allow me to go through various trials and why does he sometimes rescue me from them and why does he sometimes not rescue me from the trials that I'm enduring? You see, the truth of a passage like this is that when you see who Jesus is, and that's what the disciples are going to go through, they're going to end this episode by saying, who is this that calms the wind and the wave? When you understand who Jesus is, it does more for you in the trials of life than a trite message that says, don't worry, as you go through pain, somehow you'll get through it because Jesus is there. You gotta know who Jesus is. Who's in the boat with you? Who is this one that is sailing with you through the storms and the difficulties of life? And so, in a sense, this kind of passage can put steel in your spine for the trials and the difficulties that are coming in your life. And the way that I'm going to organize this teaching today is by simply focusing on the three questions that are in the passage. The disciples are going to ask a question of Jesus. That will be our first question. Jesus is going to ask a couple of questions of his disciples. That will be our second question. And then the disciples are going to ask a question among themselves 
about Jesus? And that will be our third and final question uh, this morning. So let's start out with our first question. Number one, it's this. Don't you care? Don't you care? And this is what we get from verse 35 to 38. Let's read it together. On that day when the evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Again, that's the first question. Do you not care? Now, all of this is set up by Mark in the way that he lays out the scene. First of all, it says in verse 35 that this happened on that day. Now, we're just parachuting into the Gospel of Mark today, so we might miss the fact that Jesus has been teaching and preaching all day long, and one of the things that he's been doing is teaching in parabolic form about the power of his word, teaching and ministering to the crowds that were flocking to him. Then we also see that Jesus invited, in verse 35, his disciples to go across to the other side. This is probably a way for Jesus to invite them to a bit of escape or respite from the pressure of ministry that was placed upon them in that moment. And as they got out onto the waters, this huge storm began to develop on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, I'm sure as many of you know, is simply a lake in northern Israel. Uh, It sits at about 700 feet below sea level, But there's from the coast of Galilee a mountain off in the distance, Mount Hermon, that goes up to over 9,000 feet in elevation. So with all of these wild shifts in elevation, the cold air and the hot air often would dance upon the surface of the Sea of Galilee, and sometimes these abrupt and serious storms would break out upon the lake. And for the boats of that day that were very small, uh, the storms were a very serious event and a serious event for the disciples themselves as they went through this great windstorm, as Mark describes it. Waves, he says, were breaking into the boat. The boat was filling with water. Now, this story, of course, reminds us of the fact that even though Jesus invited his disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee, the disciples were not immune from storms. Can we say amen to that this morning? We've discovered that a little bit in 2020, haven't we? That we, as people, are not immune from storms even though we're followers of Christ. In a sense, though, it wasn't just that they were not immune from storms. In a sense, it was as if Jesus had invited them into the very storms that they were experiencing in that moment. It was Jesus that had asked them to come into the boat. It was Jesus who had brought them out onto the waters of that lake. It was Jesus who had brought them into the place that storms would come. Now, praise God, we know that a day is coming in the life of every believer where there will be no more trials. There will be no more storms. It's called heaven, and I have an announcement for you. That day has not yet come. If you're here living and breathing, your heart is beating, you are still alive, you're still of this earth, and the day where trials evaporate has not yet occurred. 
One day, Jesus will take all of the chaos, renew and restore everything, and we will be brought into his perfect order, and no trials will exist. But right now, I think we could say it like this. We need trials, don't we? We need trials, don't we? Can you imagine an athlete, for instance, who says, you know, I'm just great at my sport. I don't need to train. I don't need to exercise. I don't need to practice. I just show up and perform. No athlete, no world-class athlete would ever dream of that kind of life. They know that they have to train. They know that they have to get under the bar. They know they have to lift weights. They know they have to practice. And this is what trials so often are for us. They bring out the better parts of us. They shape us and mold us. They make us complete, according to James 1, verse 2 to 4. They also produce in us things like perseverance and character and hope, according to Romans chapter 5. And they purify us from the defiling effects of sin, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. All right, so the trial comes in the life of these disciples. And the storm, as it's present, apparently made these disciples feel completely helpless. You know, many of them were experienced fishermen who'd been out on that lake plenty of times. But this storm, they felt that they were completely and totally out of their depth. They were familiar with the lake, but they felt outmatched in this particular moment. So they go to Jesus believing that they are going to die. This is no small thing. They really think this is it. This is the big one. They're going to sink to the bottom of this lake. And they come to Jesus and look at the searching question in verse 38. They say, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? Well, what made them ask this question of Jesus? Well, they asked this question of Jesus because he was on a pillow in the stern of the boat, asleep during this storm. Now, the interesting thing is that as the story develops, we'll discover that they were surprised that Jesus could calm the storm. So apparently, when they woke Jesus up, they weren't waking him with this expectation like, you can do something about this. They'd seen various miracles that Jesus had performed up to this point, but they didn't think that he was apparently up to that task. So why did they want Jesus to be awake so badly? Well, you know what this is like. You're going through a trial. You're going through a difficulty. What do you want? You want the people in your life whom you love to wake up and freak out with you. That's really what you want. You want them to also panic. You don't like that they're calm. You don't like that they're chill. You want them to be just as stressed as you are about your trial. So these guys come to Jesus. They wake him up. Do you not care that we are asleep? Now, the reason, of course, that Jesus was asleep during this moment had nothing to do with his lack of care. And, uh, I'll give you a little theological insight right now as to why Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat that day. Here it is. It's very deep. It's profound. Jesus was really tired that day. That's why he was asleep. He'd been ministering all day. He'd been working all day. He was fatigued. He'd been pouring out his life, and so he was able to sleep through this wild windstorm. Now, the question, do you not care that we were, are perishing? That question is answered by the mere presence of Jesus, isn't it? Knowing what we know about him today, we know that he chose to be there. We know that he chose to step out of eternity and to take on human flesh. We know that the fatigue 
that he felt that day which drove him to a depth of sleep that would keep him sedated during a windstorm was a choice that he made to take on our humanity, to experience fatigue for the first time. The the creator God choosing to be one of us, choosing to be in that boat. Does Jesus care that we are perishing? Absolutely. That's why he came. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He does not want us to perish. Of course he cares that we are perishing. But if we're honest, isn't this often the feeling that we get when we're going through trials? You know, we know a lot more about Jesus than they did, don't we? You know, we know about the cross. They didn't know about the cross yet. We know that he's the son of God and God the son. We know that he lives with us by his spirit. Yet often, we respond in the same way these disciples responded when we find ourselves in the midst of trial. We say, Lord, don't you care? Don't you see what we're going through? Don't you see what I'm facing? I feel that I am perishing and you are sleeping. Now, I think it's important to pray like this. This simple prayer, this simple plea from these disciples to Jesus activated something beautiful. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, that we should cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. And the reason that I mention this is because some believers seem allergic to this kind of prayer before God. I don't see how you can come to the conclusion that you have to act like you have it all together before God. If you've ever been a person who's done any time reading the book of Psalms, you read the Psalms and you discover emotion. You discover lament. You discover grief. You discover questioning. But what you're reading is people, person after person, who comes to God in the midst of those anxieties and lays them out before the Lord. And if we're honest, it's not always a clean and beautiful process, is it? We don't always come to the Lord with those anxieties and and have it all buttoned up like, oh, benevolent Father, here I am before you today. I'm passing through yet another trial that in your constant grace and mercy you have so sovereignly chosen to allow me to pass through. And I know that your grace is sufficient for these things, but I just thought that I might pray about them before you today, oh Lord. No, usually for us, it's like the snot is dripping, the tears are flowing, and it's like, God, what's up? What's happening to us today? Sometimes we ask this question, God, do you not care? that we are perishing. You know, I'm embarrassed to admit that this year I've prayed this kind of prayer more often than I think I have in the average year. You know, I'm a human being like the rest of you, and as a pastor, I'm influenced and pressured by so many different things. And just when I thought I've kind of gotten my head around one problem, a new problem arises. A new situation comes just feels like wave after wave after wave. People say things like, oh, 2020. And I'm like, I don't know that 2021 is going to get any better. You know, it just seems like it's just over and over again. And I've had plenty of moments in my personal prayer time before God where it's like this. God, I don't know if I can do this anymore. 
I don't know if I have the wisdom for this. I don't know if I have the grace for this. I don't know if I have the forgiveness that's needed for this. I don't know if I have the discernment to know how to behave during this time. It's just a challenging moment that many of us have experienced during this last season. But you've got to go to the Lord in the first place. And every time I've asked the Lord, Lord, do you care that I feel like I'm perishing? The Lord says, Nate, look at my cross. You know that I care. I'm gonna stand with you through all of this. But here's our second question in the passage today. Number two, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Let's read of this in verse 39 and 40. It says, Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now here what we see is that Jesus awakes immediately when the disciples grab him. And when he gets up, he rebukes the wind and the wave. That word rebuke is the same word that's used to describe when Jesus would rebuke demons. So it's authoritative. He commands the wind. He commands the waves. He tells the sea to be still. And we're not surprised looking back on this story. He's effective. Great calm comes upon the waters. It's amazing. You know, the Prince of Peace has brought peace to the Sea of Galilee. Then, after calming the wind and the wave, Jesus turned to his disciples. You know, he, he questioned his men. You know, Jesus had been teaching them in the earlier parts of this very chapter about the power of his word. Remember the parable of the sower? The sower sows the seed, the sower sows the word, and he talked about the word landing on four different types of soil. Well, the soil had something to do with the growth, but the seed, the seed was good. The seed was legit. The seed was powerful. If, if, if it found good soil, it would bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. So it was a powerful seed. It was a powerful word. And right here on the Sea of Galilee, these disciples, they're coming face to face with the word of Christ, with the power of his word. But still, even after all of his teaching, they didn't have, according to Jesus, the faith that they needed. They were still afraid in this moment. They didn't yet know who they were dealing with as they dealt with Jesus. So Jesus asked them these searching questions. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now when Jesus asked these questions of his disciples, I'm trying to say it or ask it in the tone that I think that he asked it. I don't think that this was a condescending question from Jesus. I don't think that he was rebuking them or ridiculing them or saying, what is wrong with you? You've been with me for so long now. Why don't you have any faith? Why are you still afraid? I should have picked different people than you. I don't think that's how Jesus is speaking to them. I think he's speaking like a parent, a loving parent a parent in the spirit who is training up and raising up his young children and saying, look, there's a lesson here. This is a teachable moment. I need you to learn to have faith. I need you to learn not to be afraid when the storms come. And why did Jesus need these men to learn this lesson? 
Because these men, they had a responsibility. They were the people that God was going to use to launch the body of Christ, to launch the church after his resurrection, the great event, and then after his ascension. They were to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit came, these men would then take the gospel into the world in which they lived. And when they took the gospel into the world in which they lived, they were not going to have a Disneyland experience in doing that. They were going to suffer. They were going to come face to face with the authorities of the Roman government. They were going to be persecuted by their own brethren. They were going to experience their own personal limitations. And they were going to experience great trial and difficulty and sicknesses for the advancement of God's kingdom. They needed to come to a place where they were not slowed by fear, but had faith in Jesus, that he would get them through. Now for this, there's a word in this passage that I think is so helpful. Look at it again with me in verse 35. It's the very first portion of this story. Jesus invited them to go across to the other side. You guys, this is the word that Jesus wanted them to have faith in. He's not going to invite them to go to the other side and not produce that in their lives. He is going to bring them across to the other side. In fact, if you think about it, they were invincible in that moment for two reasons. Invincible because Jesus had not yet died on the cross. He could not atone for the sin of the world by dying in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. The Bible had been clear that he would die in a specific way on the cross at Calvary. The time had not yet come. So they're invincible because they're with Jesus. They were also invincible because of this word of Jesus. Let's go, let's cross over to the other side. His word meant that they would come to the other side. And look at the first verse of chapter five in your Bibles. They came to the other side of the sea. He said, let's go to the other side, and they came to the other side of the sea. In other words, Jesus invited them to go across, and across they went. He didn't invite them to drown. He didn't invite them to die out there on the lake's waters. Now this little word from Jesus, I have to admit that as a pastor it has brought me so much comfort so many times in my pastoral life. And it's been a great blessing to me during this particular season that we've been in as the body of Christ together. You see, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. That speaks of an invincibility of the church, an invincibility of the body of Christ, that no matter what befalls us, no matter what trials come upon us, the church always has a place. God's kingdom will always continually not only exist, but advance. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Uh, Ted mentioned that I grew up in the church that I now pastor, my father being the lead pastor for many years, and then another pastor in between us, and then myself, the third pastor of this church. And my father used to always tell me as I was coming up in ministry, he used to always explain to me, Nate, God is looking for churches like this one. I'd say, what do you mean? And he said, well, God is looking for churches that are faithful to his word. God is looking for churches that are orthodox in their belief. 
God is looking for churches that are grace-filled and that believe that the Spirit of God is working today. God is looking for churches like that. So you stay faithful. You keep preaching the Word of God. You remain orthodox. And yes, you will go through trials. Yes, you will pass through difficulties. You'll watch the church do this and that. But God's Spirit has a place for you on this earth as long as you stay true. You see, the church can kill itself from within But when the church remains true, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And I'm as old as my church is, 42 years old. That's how old our church is. And I've watched our church go through all kinds of different seasons. Right now we're in a time of great blessing where God is growing us and advancing his cause. But I've watched other times where division has hit and the church has grown smaller. I've been in times where we've rented movie theaters. I remember back in the day, we had a movie theater we rented where at 12 o'clock, we had to be out of the building, and they were popping popcorn during the second service, you know, trying to get us out of there, you know, by the time for those matinees. And I remember all of that, and you know what? God was there. God was present. God was moving. God's spirit was doing many things because of that faithfulness to him and his word. In 2008, that's the year that I became the senior pastor of our fellowship. The pastor before me was 60 years old. I was 29 years old at the time. And New Year's Day hit, January 2nd, he called me into his office and said, Nate, I've been praying about it. I think that God has called me and my wife back to the mission field, but I know that he's calling you to be the senior pastor of this church. Do you agree? And he just took out his hand like this. I had 13 seconds to to make the decision. But we'd been praying about it for some time. God's spirit had been preparing me, and I accepted that invitation. And I don't know if many of you remember that year, but we eventually experienced a huge economic downturn right there during that season. It impacted our church in some very significant ways. Not only that, but a new pastor, a younger pastor, it was a time of great tumult in the body of Christ. And I had moments where I wondered, God, what are you doing? What is happening? You know, am I really doing the right thing? But steadily, over time, I've watched the Lord faithfully get us through to the other side. And if he's doing that for churches, I know that he's doing that for individual believers as well. Stay faithful to the Lord in such a time as this. Listen to this verse, Philippians 1, verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. One pastor I listened to recently, a friend of mine who's a pastor on our church staff, he said from this verse, God starts good projects and God finishes good projects. He gets us as his people to the other side. Hey, let's close by looking at the last question though. And it's this, number three, who is this. Verse 41, it says, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I'll remind you, this is not the first miracle that Jesus has performed in front of his disciples. He's healed people. He's cured leprosy, he's healed a paralyzed man, he's cast out demons, he's done a lot of miracles at this point 
in the story. And I don't think that what's happening here is that the disciples are having amnesia about Jesus' miraculous power. I don't think that they're saying to themselves, we didn't know you could do miracle stuff. Why didn't you tell us before this moment? But for some reason, even with all of that backlog in their minds of Jesus' ability, they're shocked by this miracle. There's something about this moment that stands out to them as different than anything that Jesus had previously done. It shocked them. Why did this miracle shock these men? Well, in their view, this miracle was, was an altogether different type of miracle than anything else that Jesus had done. You see, these men were Jewish men. They were steeped in the Bible, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. And when they scanned the Old Testament, they saw that it was God who parted the Red Sea. They saw that it was God who held back the Jordan River. They saw that it was God that calmed the Mediterranean once Jonah, the rebellious prophet, was thrown into it. In other words, for them, the calming of waters meant that this was God's stuff. This was divine territory. These were things that they were used to God doing when they looked into the Holy Book. What Jesus was doing was something that was done in Genesis chapter 1. Chaos was developed into order. And Jesus on the Sea of Galilee took the chaos and turned it into settled order right in front of their eyes. And all of this shocked them. They weren't ready yet at this point to say, you're the son of God, God the son, you're the Christ Messiah. But they said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In other words, like I said earlier, this miracle was a revelation, a revelation of who Jesus is. They were starting to see the divinity of Christ. The sleeper in the stern was God in the flesh, and they were beginning to realize it there that day. And I think that there was one specific scriptural reference that might have sparked in at least one of their minds that day. And I want to read it to you from Psalm 107. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can follow along with me because it's a larger passage that I want you to pay attention to today. Psalm 107, written years before Jesus showed up, years before he arrived. It says this in Psalm 107, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then, verse 28, they cried out to the Lord in the tr their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. He brought them across. Verse 31, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. They would maybe be thinking of this psalm 
This psalm that spoke of God calming the seas, stilling them so that the boats that were on them could get to their desired haven. And the response of ancient Israel was the response of these disciples that day. They began to praise God for what they experienced in that moment. And you and I today, as we consider who we have in the boat with us, we have God the Son, the Son of God, going with us through the storm. The emphasis is not so much on the fact that he can calm the storm. The emphasis is on the fact that he is in the storm with us. Does he care? Absolutely. Why are we so afraid? He is with us in the midst of trial. Who then is this? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, we have the greatest advocate anyone could ever have in Jesus. Our great high priest who is living to make intercession for us. If he ever feels like he's sleeping to you, rest assured, he is not. He is active on our behalf, working all things that occur in our lives for the ultimate good that he has purposed for those who are called and those who love him.